You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This is Luke Vanderlinden, Vice President of Membership at the Retail and Hospitality Information Sharing and Analysis Center. And you're listening to the RHISAC Podcast. I don't know what it's like where you are, but where I sit at the very edge of the New York City metropolitan area, there's definitely a chill in the air, there are more leaves on the ground than on the trees, and Christmas music is already playing in the stores. Retailers are about to hit our busiest season, so hopefully the RHISAC podcast can give you a little support or maybe a much-needed break during these always crazy times. As usual, we have a pretty packed agenda on today's episode. I will be joined by two stars from Target's cybersecurity team, Ryan Miller and Leah Schwartzman. Over the past few years, Target has developed a fraud intelligence capability, applying very similar workflows, tools, and methodologies as their cyber threat intelligence team. We'll talk to them about that effort. I will also be joined by Tony Loro of Akamai Technologies, one of our associate members. We'll talk about a threat that may be familiar to most of our listeners, but that is evolving and growing, Magecart-style attacks. And finally, we have a member spotlight, Michael Francis, Senior Manager of Cybersecurity Advanced Threat at Wyndham Hotels and Resorts. If you have something cybersecurity-related that you just have to tell us, send us an email at podcast at rhisac.org or if you're a member, hit me up on Slack or Member Exchange. And if your company is not yet a member of the RHISAC, what are you waiting for? Go to rhisac.org join to learn more and to start the process. All right, we are now joined by two members of uh, Target's amazing cybersecurity team, Ryan Miller and Leah Schwartzman. Thank you very much for joining us in the RHISAC podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So, uh, Ryan, welcome back to the podcast. Why don't don't you both tell us uh, what you do at Target, uh, your titles and roles and things like that? Sure. Yeah, Ryan Miller. I'm a senior director uh, of cyber threat intelligence and reverse engineering at Target. Uh, We also own fraud intelligence under that capability. And really, our mission is to understand the full threat landscape, pull that information and intelligence into the organization, prioritize that, uh, and, and look for opportunities for collection and detection to you know, harden our environment and protect the, the organization. Uh, Leah Schwartzman, I'm a lead analyst on our cyber threat intelligence team focusing on fraud intelligence. And so that's really building out our capability around like ORC, fraud that's hitting the retail landscape and looking at it from an external perspective and trying to process that intel and bringing it back to our business uh, to work on ways that our engineers and investigators can mitigate fraud internally within our environment. That's amazing. And it is really, uh, really cool how you're developing this this um, way intelligence practice for, based around cyber fraud that's fused with CTI, which is cool. So can you talk to us a little bit about the evolving fraud landscape that retailers are facing these days? Yeah. So I'm sure a lot of people have heard on news ORC, we're seeing, you know, stores getting hit with these organized attacks um, across uh, the country at this point. And so, you know, that's not a victimless crime in that sense. You know, us, we want to protect our guests. And that goes beyond just the in-store fraud that we're seeing 
Threat actors are evolving. These rings are organized. And so there's a cyber approach to investigating and mitigating this type of fraud. And so threat actors, they are, you know, organizing across mainstream social media. You know, a lot of people might come across on TikTok or Instagram or Facebook, these groups that look suspicious that are advertising, recruiting, or selling different fraud methods. And that's really escalating these threat actors and communicating with one another Similar to how we are communicating via social media with our friends and family, threat actors are doing the same. And that's taking what used to be a very central um, organized group where they may have to go to their local pawn shop to sell the merchandise to this global um, economy that they can buy and sell merchandise online. And with sites like eBay, Facebook Marketplace, Craigslist, the ability to monetize stolen goods in a very quick way, very anonymously, has led to this increase in um, crime opportunities for these threat actors. It really is amazing and, and much more intricate than I think most people know. So you're on the CTI team, but you're dedicated to fraud intelligence, and you're not the only analyst, I assume, that's that's dedicated to that, that practice. Yeah, we're integrated to our uh, traditional cyber threat intelligence team, and there's three of us who are focused on cyber fraud, and we work really closely across the org within our you know, um, cyber teams. So that would be our fraud investigators and detection engineering team, as well as we work in hand with our asset protection team, who are boots on the ground um, surveillance of our stores across the country. So how did how did those roles come about? How did that whole practice come about um, within within the CTI team? Uh, yeah, so it, it goes back a couple of years now, right? Like we just took a holistic approach to fraud within um, our organization, and we, you know the the decision was made to bring uh, fraud under our security umbrella. And so with that was the evolution of threat intelligence and specialization to focus on fraud intelligence. Um, you know and Really, it um, it became a, a, you know, a need for us to understand that threat landscape, right? We need to understand what the threat actors are doing so we can defend against what those threat actors are doing. We're the same concepts of how we track phishing and malware and, you know, APT groups, we need to apply that to fraud. So if you don't have dedication there, right, it becomes this secondhand approach, which a lot of, um, you know, Intel teams, I think, are initially set up like that. So as the landscape evolved, as fraud became more prominent, as, as we decided to take a, a stronger look into that from a security perspective, we had to dedicate fraud analysts to uh, intel analysts to, to really look at that intel and pull it into the organization. Yeah, you know, um, it's, it seems like if, I, if uh, I have a cybersecurity department, I wanted to spin up this kind of same service, it would be a daunting task. You wouldn't know where to begin. But you're using a lot of the same language that I think CTI analysts already use. So how, how is it different? How um, how can cybersecurity teams use what they already know to, to help start such a practice? Yeah, we really aren't reinventing the wheel here. We are using that standardized collection methodology that traditional CTI teams are focusing on and just mapping that to fraud. And that's going to look very different dependent on your organization, what experiences that you have for your guests. Nowadays, with all these omni-channel experiences, guest pickup, drive up, same-day delivery— Although that's great for our guests, it's also exposing us to opportunity for threat actors to abuse those systems. And so leveraging what you know about your own internal environment, we know our environment better than anyone else. So leveraging those business partners outside of security to really understand how their systems flow, you know, what point are, you know, our guests seeing this, how are guests impacted by different decisions that we make, and then taking that externally to say, okay, are we seeing any discussion of threat actors talking about these bypasses, these abilities to commit fraud against us in these variety of different ways. And that really is standard intelligence collection that can be applied to fraud. And once you gain that that initial collection, it'll start flowing in. You know, there's an endless pool of 
of chatter out there, of methods being sold, guides, threat actors talking about it. So once you establish that initial collection from a fraud perspective, you're going to start to get that actionable intelligence to share with your business teams. And I'll just chime in that, um, you know, it, within the within the threat landscape, we're seeing the lines being blurred, right? Like cybercrime is crossing over into fraud, vice versa, right? Like the handoff is not, um, it's you know, it's not separate anymore. Um, and so by having a dedicated fraud analyst uh, as well as a, a traditional threat intelligence analyst share the same platforms, the same tools, the same services, and we're in, ingesting all of that data, the correlation of that data from what we might say is only fraud is not turning out to be only fraud, right? You have broader visibility. And so you might see some of the tools that are used for DDoS, um, a botnet or something, right? That might also be leveraged to launch ATO attacks, right? And so if you have these indicators from that, you can see that um, if they were completely separate, you, you know, you're going to miss some of that visibility, same concept as like when fraud sits in some other corner of the organization across, than, than security does, you're not going to have that collaboration that you need to, to combat the threat. Yeah, and a threat actor doesn't care if they're online, in person, wherever. Right. And so we, we, should, we need to talk with each other as well. You know, like again, you, you mentioned all the different ways now that, that retailers serve their customers. Um, and even smaller organizations, smaller retailers also have to do those things, but they might not have the resources as a target might. Do you have any advice for... A smaller company that wants to get involved in this? Yeah, start with that first area of focus. And, you know, a lot of the, the help of the RHI SAC, you know, people share information. People are sharing trends that could be out there in regards to how threat actors are operating. So take that information back to your organization and build out what we call a kill chain. And so that's, a, once again, applying your traditional cybercrime to fraud and map out, okay, if I was a threat actor hitting a specific my organization or a specific process within my guest flow, how would they be able to bypass the controls that we might have in place? And really visualizing in that kill chain flow is going to help you as a one analyst to say, okay, who are the business partners within the organization that I need to basically make friends with to say, hey, your system is allowing threat actors to abuse X, Y, and Z. Maybe we need to have discussion around changing that process or flow without impacting the guests. And so it, all it takes is one analyst to begin to dive into that data. And once you have that key fraud focus area, it's really going out and getting that collection. So scraping those telegram, the discord, the social media channels, where these threat actors are living in that ecosystem that they're, they're communicating within leveraging that, pulling that in, and then applying that to your own organization. And it's a little time-consuming on the front end, but once you have that pre-established collection and visibility, it'll start to flow, and it'll become very clear where you need to prioritize your efforts within your own organization as well. And I think the the, the concept um, doesn't require, uh, a, you know, a 15- or 18-person team, right? Like, we're tackling one threat at a time. And so if you approach it in that way where you have an analyst that is going to look at, we're seeing ATO, let me dive into ATO, right? If you just spend a little bit of time developing collection and, and identifying that activity externally in the threat landscape, uh, if you bring that in, you can start to then realize that unrealized fraud that's happening in your organization. So it's things you didn't have visibility into, into that are being successful because they're talking about it, selling it, access, whatever, externally, you bring that in and, and now that's a thread to pull down, right? So something you never had visibility into before, now you can create controls around. Um, and again, it really just takes one analyst looking out there trying to find this stuff. Right, looking at it in a, in a different way. So all this being said, we are about to enter the busiest season of the year for retailers, uh, how is Target preparing for the holiday season? Yeah, this is, uh, I, I love this question. We get, get asked this every year, but, you know, I, I, we don't do a lot different, right? Like we take the approach of like, let's just 
see as much as we can all year wrong, right? Because the, the way that the the fraud landscape has shifted, really the cybercrime landscape has shifted, is that they 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 don't stop, right? So yes, they ramp up a little bit, but really for us, it's just really scrutinizing data a little bit more, right? So things that might have been a lower threshold in March and April are now going to be, hey, let's let's scrutinize this a little more. What activity is really going on here, right? So. You know, take ATO, for example, um, we're probably going to start to see an increase in that. Um, Actors are preparing for the holiday season, um, but that doesn't happen in December when, you know, you would think it would happen. That happens in September and October. They're trying to compromise those accounts ahead of time. So when they start to see people add credit cards or add gift cards that they get for the holiday they already have access and can leverage that. They need to prepare too, yeah. So for us, it's just, it's, you know, it's kind of status quo, but like being more vigilant, being more um, aggressive in the approach we take at our collection efforts and the analysis that we do on the alerting that we get um, and just looking for these anomalies or, um, you know, in, in the fraud case, right? Like what are the threat actors interested in? And that can change on a weekly basis, but during the holidays, right? It's going to be gift cards. It's going to be washing gift cards or leveraging gift cards to purchasing. What are the hot items, right? That sell really great around the holiday. Um, and how are they trying to hide in the mix of the heavy volume of traffic, right? right that comes to our organization during the holiday season. Um, and they're trying to kind of fly below the radar. So those are really the things that we're focusing on to, to get ahead of the holiday. And part of Intel collection on that is knowing what items are being launched across the industry. So whether it be like the hot commodity items for the resale value, so getting ahead of what those trends could look like to pre-establish that um, that visibility internally can help mitigate it before it becomes a fire drill during the busiest season. Excellent. Leah, Ryan, thank you very much. Both of you from Target's terrific CTI team. Amazing. Thank you very much for joining us on the RHS Act podcast. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you. I'm now joined by Anthony Loro, Director of Security Technology and Strategy for Akamai Technologies. Tony, welcome to the RHISAC podcast. Thank you for having me, Luke. Now, Akamai is one of the RHISAC's associate members, so we thank you for sharing your expertise with us, particularly with this year's Holiday Threat Trends Report. But let's start learning more about Akamai. Tell me a little bit about what Akamai is, does, its history, et cetera. Yeah, so Akamai is one of the uh, world's largest cloud security platforms. Uh, We started off in the late 90s as a CDN, but quickly realized that as we're developing technology to stop the world's largest threats, as well as deliver the world's largest, uh, you know, streaming services and things like that, that uh, the CDN network comes in very handy to be very close to where the attackers are located. So just like a, you kind of think of the opposite of a of delivering a, a speedy download for a for a game, maybe when an attacker attacks a site that's on Akamai, they hit our Akamai edge servers first, and that actually gives us the ability to uh, allow our customers to run their security policy in a very concise manner, but across this global platform to keep the threats far away from their environment. Wow. So uh, you have an interesting viewpoint into your customers' operations. And I, for the retail world, I think, uh, by the way, this just came up earlier today, uh, talk about mage card attacks increasing again. And I think probably 
you have uh, kind of a nice viewpoint on that. Yeah, you know, it's been interesting because, you know, Magecart, uh, as of, you know, the, the time of this recording, is not necessarily new. Uh, it's been going on for quite some time, initially targeting uh, the financial services industry. And I think what's really kind of interesting is to see a little bit of this evolution of how the attackers are kind of taking the Magecart style attack and repurposing it for and kind of remodeling it themselves uh, for their own needs. Right. So just uh, backing up, what is a Magecart style attack for those who may not be super familiar with it? Great, great point. A Magecart style attack is uh, essentially compromising a script that you as a, as a company would knowingly load into your, into your web page at time of uh, page load. So if you look at the waterfall chart of you know, the things that are loading as part of your website, traditionally, you might look at that and say, oh, here's a, a JavaScript, you know, which is like a tag manager from Google, for instance, you know, and you see where that loads as part of the page load. The things that take longer to load, you would probably reorder those to the bottom of that waterfall chart so that the, you, know, you can get as much of the page to load up uh, as quickly as possible. Well, during this kind of a similar analysis of saying, hey, where are these you know, uh, third and fourth party scripts coming from? How are we utilizing those? Uh, we started to find out that you know, attackers are compromising these third and fourth party scripts sometimes that you know, they don't have, you know, these, these smaller uh, uh, companies don't have the same level of security potentially, or they're compromising something in your web page that actually tricks that JavaScript into running malicious code in the browser of the user that's visiting your website. So if I'm a bank and one of these scripts is uh, compromised, it's now interacting with my web browser directly and has a potential to skim data uh, or to uh, you know collect and record or potentially redirect me wherever uh, the attacker wants me to go. So it sounds like it's really capitalizing on things that are put on websites legitimately and kind of hiding around there. Is that is that the evolution that you're seeing? Yeah, well, I mean, so so initially this was, uh, you know, against the uh, Magento framework. And this is kind of how, where the vulnerability kind of first, uh, you know, reared its head, if you will. Um, but a little bit of the uh, the evolution is kind of tracking how attackers know that now more and more organizations realize that in-browser attacks or client-side browser attacks are, are a problem. And the evolution that we're tracking is them actually learning new ways to evade and obfuscate their code so that, you know, as a defender, it's harder for you to identify uh, if this is happening on your site or not. So that's a little bit of that evolution. And it's, you know, I always say it's so impressive to see what the attackers do. You know, but when I'm talking to a client, they're like, it's not, it's not cool or impressive when it's happening right. to us, right? <laughs> yes, you have to you have to pick your uh, adjectives more carefully. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, you know, something I'm still learning over the years, but uh, it's it's definitely it does show a massive amount of uh, uh, of time spent thinking about new ways to continue the same attack patterns potentially, but to hide amongst the noise and evade detection. So you mentioned Google um, tags uh, as a potential vector here. Tell me a little bit more about uh, how they disguise their attacks that way using that tool. Yeah, so, um, you know, and this, this kind of goes into uh, a kind of a bigger category 
um, of, hey, are you expecting to see something uh, here, right? So Google Tag Manager is something a lot of organizations use. If you were to look at a code snippet that identified itself as Google Tag Manager as part of your page load, you probably would not pay much attention. But the attackers found a way to disguise their malicious code, uh, hiding it behind the Google Tag Manager code. Um, you know, so this, you know, obviously um, this is an invasive technique, making it a little bit more challenging to uh, detect. And I mean, and these are even. It goes from as simple as base sixty four encoding, you know, obfuscating any kind of um, URLs or callouts or keywords that they're they're using. You know, again, the whole goal here is to make sure you can't find, you know, what you might be looking for as a defender. Right. So in this case, it's nothing that that Google's doing wrong. It's just hiding behind something that's nearly ubiquitous on all professional websites. Correct. And this is like getting an email that says your taxes are due right around this time of the year or a, a letter, you know, a marked envelope in the mail. You would kind of expect to be seeing that. So that's kind of what they're taking advantage of in this case. So it, what are some other examples of how it's evolving maybe to use things that are legitimate uh, and that were, would be expected or, or otherwise uh, understood? Yeah. So, so in February, we published that article um, about Magecart uh, attacks disguised as Google Tag Manager. In June, we published another article uh, talking about how the attackers are using legitimate websites to, uh, you know, basically hijacking legitimate websites in order to further obfuscate their their attacks. So some of the victims were identified in, um, you know, North America, Latin America, Europe. Um, and these are, you know, hundreds of thousands of visitors per month uh, potentially um uh, you know, coming to these pages, uh, and the attackers were able to, um, you know, get away with PII, sell uh, credit card info, and uh, etc. on the web. In fact, there was a um, a large attack carried out against a Canadian beverage dealer, if you will, we'll just call them that, that had similar uh, techniques being used. But this is, you know, uh, interesting because the attackers are making kind of a makeshift command and control server out of legitimate web servers, right? So, so these hosted, you know, victims, they kind of act as distribution centers for this malicious code. You know, I, I guess some of the other things that are notable to mention, the attacks were targeting websites using Magento, WooCommerce, WordPress, Shopify. I mean, just Shopify by itself, you just say that. And people are like, yeah, there's business happening on Shopify that uh, that the attackers were specifically targeting using this method. Wow! Yeah, and and all the other um, tools you mentioned are, are well widely used as well. Uh, that's amazing. And so th- you published these uh, this research on your website on your blog, I assume. Uh, correct. Yeah, we have a, a threat research blog, and uh, and and in general, you know, I I think the the kind of the interesting thing is we're we're tracking these not just to. Uh, better inform how we build defenses, but we want people to know. We want people to understand what the threats are, the risks are. Um, so that's part of uh, what our threat research uh, team does: is publish these articles, um, share code snippets, uh, even you know requests for comment. Right? Like, are you guys seeing something? You want to talk about it? You know, give us a ring. That's that's what we're here for. You know. Yeah, that that kind of sharing is is why we exist as well. Uh, to you know, all band together um, on, on for these things. 
So we know that we had a great uh, segment uh, a couple months ago on the podcast about PCI DSS uh, version 4.0. That standard requires defenses in place to protect against MageCart style web skimming attacks. Could you maybe walk us through anything in there that pertains specifically to scripts? Sure, sure. So there's a couple uh, new requirements in uh, PCI DSS 4.0. Uh, one of them is uh, 6.4.3, and it simply says public-facing web applications are to be protected against attacks, confirming that each script is authorized, assuring the integrity of each script that runs, and keeping an inventory of all scripts uh, to be maintained you know, so that you can have that uh, uh, have that as justification why each script should be necessary in the first place, right? So that's the first requirement. Um, the other one is uh, 11.6.1, uh, and this it takes a little bit different of a direction, but it says unauthorized changes on payment pages uh, are detected and responded to. So you have to be able to uh, detect unauthorized changes on payment pages and have a means to address them. Now, this is an interesting kind of uh, takeaway here because most security for um, transactional pages like checkout and you know, um, uh, you know, kind of the later stages of your of your shopping process or transactional process, most of the time you would focus on, hey, a web application firewall can defend against this type of abuse, right? Because it's looking at the request between uh, the, the, the attacker, the bad guy or gal, and the web server. But in this particular case, these scripts are executing as part of a known page load on a legitimate website, and they're only interacting with the client-side browser. So this this really talks a lot about why we need visibility into those client-side interactions. What does that look like? How do we you know, uh, maintain a level of, uh, of security um, and apply the same level of you know, risk reduction that we have with WAF, looking at the front end and things that are happening, to the, to the transactional changes that could be happening uh, within the client-side browser. So this is a little, little bit different of a, of a viewpoint on that. Right, the attack surface is everywhere, not just on things that we can control as much. Correct, absolutely. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. Tell us about this. Tony Loro, Director of Security Technology and Strategy from Akamai Technologies. Thanks very much for joining us on the podcast, and thanks very much to Akamai for their support. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Luke. Appreciate it. All right, now we're joined by Michael Francis, Senior Manager of Cybersecurity Advanced Threat and Response for Wyndham Hotels and Resorts. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Michael, and thanks for being our member spotlight. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So uh, give us a little uh, information about yourself. What does a senior manager of cybersecurity advanced threat and response at Wyndham do? Sure. So, yeah, I've been with Wyndham for about six years now. Uh, I oversee all functions related to threat intelligence, incident response, and computer forensics. Uh, so think of it as your escalation point for the SOC. Uh uh, advisor for the CISO, advisor for my VP, who oversees everything traditional cybersecurity outside of IAM and architecture. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a good group, good group, uh, and we have a lot of fun here. So you've been there for six years. Did you always work in cybersecurity, uh, either at Wyndham or or in your previous roles? Yeah, um, 
you know, as, as someone in their mid thirties, I've spent 15 years of my career in cybersecurity, which is a lot for someone uh, as young as I have. <laughs> uh, I got into the the industry really early uh, off the off the bench at Geek Squad, uh, for working at, a, at Best Buy out here on the island. It's something I knew I always wanted to do. I always enjoyed cleaning up systems, doing IT work. Um, got really into uh, removal of malware and identification of malware and had an, an opportunity really early on. I was studying for cybersecurity at a local state university and got pulled into uh, CA Technologies uh, out here on Long Island, which is a major tech employer. And at the time, they owned uh, CA Antivirus and Pest Patrol and you know, wanted to work my way up towards getting on like the virus research team there. Um, did a lot, of, a lot of IT work there and my career kind of took off from that. So you've been in cybersecurity almost as long as there's been cybersecurity. So what what was compelling about it to get you? Uh, I mean, you clearly have always had kind of a tech aptitude coming from the Geek Squad, but uh, what what made what was so compelling about cybersecurity that you wanted to make the leap? Uh, it was a it's something that, as I said, it was uh, something I enjoyed doing first up first and foremost, uh, just being able to research different things. But really, what what really gravitated me towards the industry and towards the career not only looking forward and, and doing wanting to do my, malware reverse engineering and research, but what really got me hooked into the industry was when the APT1 report dropped from Mandiant uh, detailing Chinese MSNS cyber operations and kind of completely opening up the door to the threat intelligence side of the house. That, that was the main fork in my career. That was the main pivot point. And, uh, really dove hard into that, you know, at that point in time. So you must love access to the CTI that comes from 250 different uh, retailers that are members of the RHISEC. Yeah, yeah, it's a great. Sometimes it's a sometimes it's a fire hose, but there's a lot of really, really great information there. Especially, you know, getting so tactical down to what my peers are seeing. You know, even though from a business sense, you know, the Marriotts, the the Hiltons, the IHGs of the world are competitors to Wyndham. On this side of the fence, you know, when it comes to cyber defense and resilience, they're just like an extension of my team. And that's all possible through RHISAC. Right. We do like to say that our members may compete with each other on price, product, uh, marketing, but not on the security of, of the data and their customers' data. Um, so having access to so much threat intelligence from both retail, the broader our broader membership, but then specifically hospitality, what would you say are some of the unique challenges that um, you see at Wyndham or, or just uh, to the extent that you can or, or in the hospitality industry? Uh, I think for, for hospitality in general, uh, we see a wide gamut of actors, uh, mainly on the, the cybercrime side, right? We see a lot of commodity uh, cybercrime activities. So having to have all your bases covered there um, from you know, making sure you know, initial access vectors such as email and external Perimeter vulnerabilities are, are locked down and tight, which can be very tough for uh, a hospitality company, especially if they do the managed IT side at hotels. Uh, that could be a lot of systems, a lot of assets, a lot of different shapes and sizes, a lot of different locales, a lot of different cultures you've got to deal with. Um, so, so just like typical retail, that can be that can be very difficult and very expansive. Also, maturity, you know, hospitality definitely in the the mid to late 2010s. Uh, Definitely got rinsed by a, a couple of different actors, so specifically Fin7. And I think that's caused a lot of us to, to mature, which has been great to be able to integrate well into something like RHISAC. I mean, when we first joined uh, the, the ISAC, 
prior to that, before we even joined the ISAC, we were with another threat sharing group uh, with a couple of, in, of, of industry partners. And, you know, the, the, the maturity wasn't there uh, uh, long and wide. And, and I think just seeing that uh, really come to fruition these last couple of years uh, has been really exciting to see. Uh, just a maturity across the hospitality space when it comes to cyber. Right. So speaking of maturity, you guys work with thousands of different franchisees because you, you have so many properties and, and work with so many. And, and some of these franchisees are, are huge companies that really, frankly, the public hasn't heard of, but they, they may own hundreds of properties. But some of them are, are mom and pops that own one or two properties. So how, how much do you get involved with the franchisees and, and supporting them and, and kind of bringing them into the fold of, of Wyndham's environment? Yeah, so the franchisee model in some ways works to our benefit. I mean, we are far and wide uh, a little bit more hands-off than a, a managed IT property there, but we do a lot of, uh, of overseeing, right? So we'll, we'll reach out to the, to the franchisees internally if we have to, if we spot something during routine monitoring. Um, but uh, yeah, it does make things a little difficult because we don't have hands-on, eyes-on most of those franchisees. So it, it can prevent a little bit of a challenge, but when there is something that we do find and we do have to get engaged, uh, typically those franchisees are, are very happy to get the assistance and, and get the guidance from us. So oh, That's good. That's good that they're, uh, they welcome uh, oversight from the, from the brand. Tell me a little bit about, uh, I, I assume, I hope that you're uh, not all work and no play. Well, what do you do in your free time? What kind of hobbies do you have? Yeah, uh, I got definitely one main hobby that takes up a large majority of my time outside of PC gaming, I've always built PCs, uh, been doing that for, since like the sixth grade. But um, outside of that uh, and, and gaming, um, I actually manage the community database for uh, a sports sim game called Eastside Hockey Manager. Um, so I am the community lead for that. Uh, if you've ever played Football Manager or any of those kind of intense sports sims, it's that, but for hockey. So I manage a database that covers the entire world uh, all the way down to Bantam level, you know, 13-year-old uh, hockey, all the way up to every single pro league across the across the world. So I know pretty much every league, every team, almost every player when it comes to to, to hockey around ice hockey around the world. Yeah, it's, it's it's a really fun hobby. I've made a lot of friends all across the globe with that. Um, it's been a really really fun thing. I've been doing that for about four or five years now. So it's, that takes up a majority of of my time. I'm always editing that database. I I, I edit the game more than I play the game at this point, but it's, uh, it's, it's been a lot of fun. And a real life Islanders fan, I assume. Yep. Yep. You got that right. Uh, classic gym Jets Islanders Mets. So I'm a glutton for punishment. Excellent. Um, yes. Low self-esteem. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, so, but it's been exciting. I mean, you know, the Islanders have had a couple of really, really good runs here yeah. with the new, new ownership and the new building in Elmont's fantastic. Uh, I do have access to season tickets, so I, I do go oh, good. fair amount. So yeah, it's hockey's pretty much. Hockey and music are pretty much my life outside of, outside of cyber, for sure. Possibly one of the more successful New York teams in recent years as well. Yeah, believe it or not. Yeah. <laughs> of all sports. Uh, so if, if I had to uh, ask you to get out your crystal ball and uh, tell me what you think is, is coming up in the future for cybersecurity. I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but um, what, what, what do you think's uh, happening in, in the future? Um, I mean, I, I, I hate to dive into like the AI Doomscape card, but um, I, I do definitely believe that that AI is is going to cause some issues. Um, we're already starting to see that with the large language model type AI, but 
as we start to see other different types of AI and different uses for it, uh, I think that there's going to be more more negative than positive coming out of that space, unfortunately, and th- uh, especially if if the U.S. doesn't get its act together around you know uh, policies and, and regulation on some of these companies and uh, continuing to allow you know the the foxes to guard guard the henhouse, if you will, you know. So it'll be interesting to see what comes out of Europe there, um, but that's definitely something that that's on my that's on my radar. I mean, these large language models being used to to again kind of elevate and, and enhance these commodity actors, which is really the main entry point. You know, what, what what continues to really scare me coming out of coming out of Black Hat. I still think that companies, especially very very large organizations, hearing from friends at work incidents, uh, we're still not getting the basics right, and it's really really scary to see. You know, I've been doing this for close to fifteen years now. And the fact that we're still not patching asset management is still a problem. Um, cloud is is still widely misunderstood. Uh, we're seeing a lot of very very large organizations who are, you know, shifting to cloud or, or building out infrastructure in cloud, but not realizing that the security is really on that organization. Right? They're still assuming that well, security is Google's problem, security is Amazon's problem, security is Microsoft's problem. To an extent, it is, but I think that there's still a large misunderstanding there, and it, it, it's definitely causing a lot of a lot of headache and a lot of problems, unfortunately. Um, so I, I think that you know, to, to go back to your original question, uh, not just AI, but I think the complexity of the cloud and the misunderstanding there and the lack of talent is still gonna gonna be a pain point going forward. Yeah, that's that's kind of my my prediction. But hopefully, we as these companies go through their their incidents, they they come out on the on the better half, funding and resources and you know, they become more resilient, just like I talked about how hospitality has kind of come out on the other on the other side of that other side of that hill and in a I think overall a much better space. Those kinds of challenges will continue to keep your plate full. Uh, what do you what do you think where do you see your career progressing uh, uh, not necessarily that you're looking for a new job, but like where where do you <laughs> see yourself going in, in 10, 20 years? Yeah, yeah. No, no, no risk of that to uh, anyone at Wyndham listening. Uh, you guys keep me fat and happy. Um yeah, I, I think what's going to be exciting is to continue to see where the areas that I oversee kind of kind of go. Um, you know, I'm, I'm fingers crossed. I'm hoping to add on a red team uh, in the, uh, as soon as next year and, and, get, and get some more headcount. Like everyone is is kind of hoping to get more headcount, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that's that's where we're once we get some more more people on the team with with some different mindset and different capabilities, we'll be able to open up more avenues for different services for Wyndham. Um, looking to mature from you know, ad hoc threat hunting or, or routine threat hunting, but more into continuous detection engineering. Um, that's something that plus adding red team capabilities are definitely the, the two things that I'm looking forward to adding in the coming years. And as a seasoned cybersecurity veteran, uh, any advice for our listeners, both members and non-members out there? Uh, as I said, get the basics right. Uh, try to shift that risk as left as possible. Uh, don't ignore your vendors. Please, please, please stop disrespecting your vendors. Uh, they do provide good service when you ask for it. Unfortunately, you may have to pay for it as well. I think that that's a, a huge thing that's overseen is, you know, the first thing in budget, nego- budget negotiations when it comes to a vendor is what are you cutting out? Training and professional services. And I think that that is a huge mistake. Um, you know, where Wyndham has been really successful is we partner with our vendors. We view them as extensions of our internal security team. If they're successful, Wyndham's successful, right? So we take that their advice, their health checks, you know, their here's how you guys should be configured very, very seriously, uh, especially on the email side, especially on the external vulnerability side. And that's what allows us to be more resilient against this stuff. Um, yeah, so that's what I would recommend. 
That's great advice. I appreciate that. I mean, because vendors, memberships, other people from other organizations, great assets, as you said before, an extension of your uh, own department and your own efforts very well. Excellent. Michael Francis, Senior Manager of Cybersecurity, Advanced Threat and Response from Wyndham Hotels and Resorts. Thank you very much for allowing us to spotlight you. Uh, and, uh, and thanks for your support of the RHISAC. Absolutely. Thanks very much. Thank you to my guests, Ryan Miller and Leah Schwartzman of Target, Tony Loro of Akamai Technologies, and Michael Francis of Wyndham. One announcement. It seems like we just got home from the Cyber Intelligence Summit in Dallas, Texas, and we did. It was just last month. But in case you haven't heard, we're switching it up next year. Our next summit will be in April and in Denver, Colorado. The website is already live, and you can go ahead and register. Just go to summit.rhisac.org. As always, thank you to the production team who do their best to make us sound good. For the RHISAC, that's Andy Chambliss and Marisa Treshinecki. And from N2K Networks, formerly known as the CyberWire, Jennifer Ivan, Trey Hester, and Elliot Peltzman. And thanks to you for tuning in. Stay safe out there. Thank you.